and welcome to another Climate Crisis Conversation. This is a podcast series hosted by the Climate Psychology Alliance and by me, Verity Sharp. The subtitle of this series, Catastrophe or Transformation, is particularly apt for this episode. It's the CPA's Caroline Hickman in conversation with a bright young activist called Clover Hogan. And her Damascene moment, as you'll hear, was when uh, she heard the phrase, the greatest threat we face isn't climate change, it's our feeling of helplessness in the face of it. So that is now at the heart of her mission to help young people identify that feeling, give them space to feel the despair, but then to enable them to realise the enormity of their individual and collective power. So Clover now is an impressively lucid spokesperson and she's also founded her own organisation which is called Force of Nature and in fact you could use that very phrase to describe Clover herself and she's still so young so Caroline's first question here is spot on. How did you get here Clover? You're 20 years old. (laughs) I'm not even patronising but you know I I wasn't as amazing as this when I was 20. Oh you're very sweet. (laughs) chance. How did I how did you get here? Well part of the story is that I am the love child of a botanist and a personal development coach. Okay. So um I grew up in a small town in Australia tropical north Queensland. Yeah. Fishing frogs out of the toilet bowl dodging snakes that hung from the ceiling and Mm. instead of doing my homework going out onto the mudflats to rescue beach sea turtles. So Mm. I grew up with the wild and the wonderful and for me at that age there was never nature was never an other it was always just part of my world um but when i was 11 that world started to fracture um Mm -hmm. when i started watching documentaries so the first documentary i watched was the cove okay uh which Mm -hmm. is really really difficult to watch um but it it effectively covers the annual dolphin slaughter that happens in taiji in japan yeah and it was my first real exposure to mass exploitation and I could not quite believe that we humans were capable of inflicting this kind of pain Mm. onto other species and onto ourselves and it was at that moment that that anger kind of I I didn't allow it to fully ferment into despair but it turned into conviction Mm. it turned into wanting to go out there and be a voice for the voiceless and so that was the sort of vow that I made to myself at 11 at 11 yeah and uh, decided to become this kind of environmental evangelist and (laughs) in line with that had these well have two very supportive um, parents who Mm. allowed me to coerce them into moving to Indonesia at 13 so that I could attend the green school, which is wallless bamboo classrooms in the middle of the jungle. Mm. And aside from being, you know, the pioneering kind of sustainability school, it's very much about how to foster a child's curiosities. So the antithesis of the standardized education system, which is about, you know, how to turn you into a set of averages. It's really where are you naturally smartest and, and how can we help that? And how can we help that in line with a wider purpose, a bigger mission. Mm. And so I realized that my greatest curiosity was, you know, how to uh, persuade people, how to communicate about these problems in a compelling way. Mm. And I was still driven by this conviction. And so I started lobbying with the United Nations, um, became increasingly frustrated by that kind of like political obfuscation, which kind of crescendoed at COP21, the Climate Paris meeting, um, where I was mid-conversation with a stuffy dude in a suit, so tremendously frustrated by the lack of 
urgency with which you know these business leaders corporate political leaders were responding to the issues Mm. um and it was then that i had this huge aha moment which was you know the greatest threat that we face isn't climate change it's our feeling of helplessness in the face of it and so that was my trigger and from there what's you know started as a kind of flame of curiosity turned into an outright blaze an obsession and so um before graduating from the green school at 16 i wrote this thesis over six months exploring the intricacies of this thing this helplessness which i discovered actually had a name uh ecophobia and you know a, a coin a name coined by a bunch of wacky psychologists back in the 80s that relates specifically to this helplessness not at the problems themselves but at our own feelings of smallness um, in response to them and that's where it all really began from there i went on to design national youth strategy from impossible foods in silicon valley the kind of headline grabbing startup that makes meat from plants I worked at Leaders Quest, the social enterprise that takes C-suite leaders out of their cubicles into the real world to try to catalyze heart and mind shifts. And then more recently working with Volans, um, founded by John Elkington, who we in the industry know is the kind of godfather of sustainability. So was very, very fortunate to uh, land in these positions and, and really have um, older generations kind of take me under their wing and for much of my time in each of those positions was very much just a fly on the wall, a sponge, absorbing lots of information and developing my own theories and ideas about things until I reached a point where I felt confident enough to start my own organisation, which I did earlier this year. And, and that's called? Force of Nature. Right. Yes, so we kind of embarked on this research project to understand the psychology of agency. Right. Um, so worked with over 2,000 international students over the summer, um, really diving deep with them into their own feelings and beginning to develop a kind of corresponding formula of sorts or template to be able to shift from a state of helplessness yeah. to a state of feeling empowered while also creating the space to feel all of those feels and uh, managing to hold the tension between those two places. And we met, what, a few months ago? Yeah, by not phone even first. two months. Yes, exactly. By email and phone. Yeah, so I was so excited when yeah. when I first read about you because okay. I, when I, well, when I was 16, kind of like first discovering this world of eco-anxiety and eco-phobia, mm. I felt very much in a, in a little bubble. Okay. And mm. I, I often felt like people didn't quite get it. And so when I was first introduced to you and read that you're, career, your title was eco-psychotherapist and that you actively help young people overcome their own mm. feelings or at least better understand them mm. and was studying it in the Maldives, working with mm. people on the ground. Like I was tremendously excited because it's, it's really what I, I wanted to do <laughs> from the time I was a teenager. So um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a turning point for me, definitely. And you said something really interesting. Mm. So we, we had an email exchange yeah. where you kind of sent me these really long emails asking me all these really complicated <laughs> questions. Uh, and I had to write you essays yeah. uh, in reply. <laughs> and then we had a phone call. Yeah. And we were supposed to talk, I think, for an hour. Uh-huh. And we talked for what, three, three and, and a half, half hours. at least, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was long, <laughs> I know. 
Um, and you said something really funny afterwards. What was it you said after that phone call? I had an emotional hangover, <laughs> so I spent about. I'm so sorry. Uh, yes, <laughs> I know. I hope this isn't like every interaction kind of no, they have people. No, no. no so I, I no, um, just for you, Glover. Yes, just for me. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I had this kind of emotional hangover um, by the nature of what you kind of exposed to me about my own beliefs mm-hmm. in the world and, and many of the kind of foundations on which I had built my idea of myself in the context of these problems. And it was it was just one of those, you know, really <laughs> life-changing conversations that um, totally changed the trajectory of where I've gone since, actually, and, and how I think about these things. So can you say a bit more about what it was? Mm. Because when I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, gosh, this is all incredibly positive. <laughs> and you're a really positive person. Yeah. You're really impressive. You know, it's wonderful listening to you. Um, but you come across as so positive. Mm. And yet you're speaking about helplessness. And yes. you're speaking about the subjects you're talking about yeah. are ones of pain and yes. struggle, right? So there was quite a lot we talked about there, wasn't there, about how to reframe that differently. Mm -hmm. Can you say a bit about that? Absolutely. I think our conversation came at a really interesting time Mm. in that I think it might have been two days before I was sat on the train coming over from Richmond and looking at the images of what was happening in the Amazon. Yeah. And... I couldn't take it anymore and Mm. for the first time in a while I allowed myself to feel the full depth of despair and heartbreak Mm. and um, burst into tears on the train, (laughs) much to the shock and horror of the polite Brits sat around me. Um, And that was was really confronting because Mm. I think since first encountering this ecophobia, this eco-anxiety, I had been of the mindset that it is something you need to overcome, it's something you need to fight, it's something you need to Mm. beat, and in fact, eco-anxiety or feeling powerlessness is somehow a flaw. Mm. Now, our conversation completely threw that on its head, and in part because after having this moment on the train, I felt more liberated and more like myself and more wholly me than I had in a long time. And when I brought that up with you, Mm. it suddenly made a whole world of sense because I recognized that in fact to move forward, it isn't about sweeping those feelings under the rug. Mm. It's holding the tension between that heartbreak and that despair and, you know, that I mean, overwhelming anger and frustration that we feel, mm. but also holding that with the tension of the optimistic optimism and seeing what is possible. Mm. And it's also to take it a step further, beginning to reconcile the damage that we have already done. And it's a shift that we're starting to see in the climate conversation which is that, you know, climate crisis isn't an inconvenience, it's not something happening 10 years from now, in fact, it's something that's been happening for a long time, it's happening right now, there are currently people who are losing their homes, their families, their lives because of the climate crisis, whether it's, you know, losing their homes to sea level rise or famine or migration, Mm -hmm. and 
it it was being able to hold those feelings in a way that I didn't completely uh, collapse and totally lose my marbles. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and using that depth of emotion as a strength. Mm. So what was this about our conversation mm. that supported you in doing that? Can you yeah. try and know, <laughs> you know what it was? Um, it, I think it was a multitude of things, but for one, it was a response to the kind of language that I had been using to yeah. you up until that point in our email. So, I, you know, I kind of talked about what we're doing with Force of Nature. I was like, you know, we're mobilizing mindsets. Yeah. We're helping young people <laughs> yeah. uh, step up and take action. And in fact, you reflected back to me that there's very much embedded in this idea of positivist psychology. Sure. So it's the mind is something to be mastered. Yeah. Uh, it's a very, you can call it a number of things. It's a colonial mindset, yeah. whatever, but it's very much, a, it's a power dynamic. Yeah. And you asked me to you asked me about how a caterpillar turns into a butterfly yeah and i very smugly said well i do know actually the caterpillar dissolves and transforms itself into the butterfly <laughs> and you just paused for a second you said what's what's wrong with <laughs> that statement and it finally clicked which was that i had put the caterpillar at the center of its own universe in that I was saying that the caterpillar was controlling the transformation. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, it is not something that it controls. It's something that it has to completely surrender itself to. And then it comes out the other side as a caterpillar. And so... The butterfly. Yeah. As a yeah. butterfly, sorry. Yeah. So rather yeah. than this idea of, um, you know, having to master our mindsets or purely focus on the agency, there's this depth of the unconscious and the surrendering to the unknowing that is critical that we need to carry forward. Um, so Isn't that scary, though? <laughs> it, I mean, you know, what's yeah. it, what was it like for you hearing that it in was, relation to the climate emergency? That's Yeah, it's, it's really confronting because I think to give yourself over to that despair is to also acknowledge the very real possibility that we're not going to be successful mm -hmm. and that also just reconciling that by every projection, even the most optimistic projections, we're still going to be losing hundreds of species every day. Yeah, as you said, um, we already have. We already have, right? Yeah. And so for for anyone who cares deeply about these issues, and I think we all do, and it's not a matter of varying degrees, it's just a matter of how much we allow ourselves to care about these things. Okay. Um, we, it is heart-wrenching. Yeah. Um, and so we need to be able to move forward in a way that doesn't, dishonor ourselves and our own feelings about these things because actually they'll just come back to kind of sabotage us um as einstein said you know we can't solve these problems with the same limited thinking that created them and so we can't singularly think that the same systems and methods and formulas are going to uh, be successful because climate change itself isn't the problem it's a symptom of broken systems symptoms of how we produce our food mm. how we clothe ourselves but also who we put into power and why we put them there sure. even so much mm. of the language we use around climate is embedded in a war mentality it is fighting climate change it is taking it down it's it's this real scarcity kind of mindset and in fact you know climate change is not something to be beaten if you want to talk about solutions then it's about drawing down ghgs from the atmosphere carbon dioxide methane nitrous oxide from the atmosphere right so it's we've tried to turn it into something packageable but we've become very reductionist in our approach why do you think people have done that why do you think that has been the way that a lot of people have gone. 
Uh, I mean, there's obviously a conspiracy. Well, it's not a conspiracy. It's true that there it, it has been in the interests of people in perceived positions of power right. to keep the public dumbed down. <laughs> um, the reason we refer to it as climate change is a very concerted decision because it doesn't activate fear in mm. the same way that global heating mm. uh, does. Mm. And that decision was made by a bunch of powerful people in America mm. uh, because they didn't want to alarm the public. More so, they didn't want to lose the money coming from the fossil fuel industry, right? right. So there, there has been a big lobby to actually dominate the climate narrative, but it's also, we've really failed to work according to evolutionary psychology. Mm. So, you know, climate as a challenge is unique in many ways um but most of all because historically it's been really hard to visualize right mm -hmm. now we humans are wired to respond to sudden intimate attacks when a tiger leaps us from a bush we're wired for fight or flight so an issue is large yet historically slow moving as climate change hasn't quite activated our defensive mechanisms and of course more, people are more afraid of losing things in the short term than they are in the long so it's it's hard to begin to bridge that gap especially when you're kind of over catastrophizing or seemingly over catastrophizing around the climate crisis and yet living in this cushy western bubble i'm not directly seeing the impacts today but right. that's changing rapidly yeah and i know you've been out uh <clears throat> in america mm. and i know you've been having these conversations these difficult conversations with people that were very hard to get through to <laughs> yeah how did you survive that um yeah so i was doing uh, i was speaking to a number of uh bankers yeah. on wall street Really interesting, really, really interesting. Was quite intimidated going into those conversations because I've had the privilege of existing in my sustainability bubble where I don't have to justify why it might be a good idea to start defending the planet. Yeah. And in these instances, you're having to repackage that as an enormous business opportunity, mm -hmm. you know? And that is at a direct juxtaposition to how I feel about these challenges. So on that personal level- I was level, gonna say, how do you keep a straight face? Yeah. <laughs> how do, how do you well, do that? Well, no, do you know when I really struggled to keep a straight face was when I was being told by one such in uh, banker that in fact, the most effective solution for global warming was fracking, yeah. uh, <laughs> which is something that my family personally lobbied against for several years in Australia. So I, I was almost snapping the pen in half at that point. Um, <laughs> but do you know what? I think all of us, no matter where we are in this conversation, have our own coping mechanisms yeah. and our own defensive mechanisms. And yeah. for young people who are taking to the streets today, there, there is no other alternative, right? We have been born into what we feel are fundamentally broken systems, and we want to become custodians of a future by our own design. Mm. We want to rebuild and we want to rethink every part of how we live, breathe, exist. Mm. But for people who have benefited from those broken systems mm. their entire lives and built their entire careers around them, there is nothing more confronting than not only thinking, okay, I have to completely change everything that I do today, but also reconciling that often those careers have been built on the backs of people in developing countries. Yeah. They've been built off the back of enormous environmental exploitation. Yeah. So there is a huge reconciliation that needs to happen personally, mentally, emotionally for these people. Um, and so it's tricky having to try, uh, trying to navigate these conversations because the last thing that you want to do is tip into the savior complex or finger pointing mm. or 
I'm, you know, right, you're wrong. And as Charles Eisenstein puts it, you know, if we point at the oil executive or the banker and, and say, you know, you're the bad guy, I'm the good guy, and if I were you, I would do things better, then what that suggests is that we're not fully understanding the influences that have converged on that person's life. And so instead of trying to, you know, demonize or vilify those individual characters, how are we rewriting the story in which they operate? And my belief is that that story has to come from a place of love and empathy and compassion, recognizing that we're all on our own journey. Some people need to be pressured much more than others, but it's about inviting everyone into this new future. I think that's the only way that we can begin to engage in a dialogue that is fully inclusive. Hmm. Do you think that might be possible? I do think it's possible because I've seen it in personal relationships. I've seen it in business encounters. I've often seen, in fact, business leaders who have such a 180 degree shift in their thinking that they refuse to continue operating in those existing systems. So in a business context, it often means resigning, stepping down, right. moving and using their skills wielded for good, <laughs> basically. So, so you've seen that transformation. Uh, yeah. You've seen it actually work. I, can, I, I see that it can happen and it has to start with the mind, right? It has to start from within. And we often talk about systems mm. transformation, but systems transformation begins with self-transformation. Okay. And we need to create more space for people to go through that journey without becoming complacent. You know, we don't have another 20 years to go to a, yeah. a go to a retreat somewhere and sing Kumbaya and, and all kind of <laughs> indulge in that personal transformation. Well, as you said earlier, it's already too late. Mm. It's already too late for species, for many people. Yeah. There's already loss of life. There's already mass migration. Yeah. And it's too late in terms of sea level rises for a lot of low-lying countries. Yeah. So it is too late. And you seem to be saying that we have to be optimistic. Mm. We have to hold that hope. Yeah. 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 How do you manage that within yourself, though, when you're struggling with that reality mm. of that denial? Yeah. What do you do? So I think it's important to point out some of the failings of the sustainability environmental movement, um, one of which most obviously for me is that we've spent so long fighting against problems and defining ourselves based on what we're against that mm -hmm. I think perhaps we've forgotten to take pause and think about what it is that we're actually working toward and that's what, what do you mean by that explain that to me I think it's I think it's hard to begin to reach destination if you haven't yet imagined what that could actually look okay. like right. and so when we're talking about things like systems transformation what a different economic system looks like mm. you know what a new education system looks like i think we need to come from that place as well as the place of reconciliation um because we need to have some kind of collectivized hope you know it, it can't be single-sided from either end of the spectrum mm. and it also comes from creating a story around yourself that enables you to feel really good because I often see, see burnout, especially in young change makers who are so attached to the issues and problems that they're trying to see solved without necessarily 
doing so in a way that makes them happy or where they're in their flow. And so much of the work that we do is, you know, what is this intersection between passion and pain? You know, what uh, what's that problem that you want to see solved in your lifetime that makes you more frustrated and angry than anything else? But how do you show up to solve it by way of where you're naturally most curious and passionate and gifted? And it's the marrying of those two things, you know. I used to think that to be an environmentalist, I'd have to chain myself to a tree or ride a zodiac into the path of a whaling ship. Mm. And in fact, I realized that my... Did you ever do that? <laughs> uh, not quite. I don't think I did either of those things, no. Did you do anything as outrageous as... Uh, or positive in, in terms of at physical action? Well, this is a thing, I think... Sorry, I, I stopped you talking, no, no, but we'll no, go back to Yeah, that. I think that's part of it, right? I realized, and I think it's a privilege that I realized quite early on, that my mode of protest was perhaps more subversive okay. than, you know, going out and rallying in the streets. And it's it's something that I do because I love the communitas of it. You know, mm. I love sitting in on the, you know, climate strikes and mm. having conversations with those young people, experiencing what they're experiencing mm. as a young person myself. Well, <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> and so, you know, but I realized that actually I was a bit too much of a word nerd to go to the Arctic and, and study climate science. And in fact, that was my, that was my, my weapon of choice. You know, that's, that's what I wanted to be able to wield. Mm. And I think we need to help more people because more young people especially do exactly that and, and find what that is for them. Mm. Because often in the wake of protest comes powerlessness when demands aren't met by elected officials who, you know, don't act on what they've committed to. And it's the same thing with when we look to, you know, uh, companies, massive companies, Starbucks saying that it's banning plastic straws and mm. replacing them with plastic lids, which uses more disposable plastic. Like, young people know that this is BS and they <laughs> see right through it. And so rather yeah. than feeling beholden to those yeah. others, you know, the government, business, parents, we need to become responsible to ourselves and how we decide to show up on an individual level and do so in a way where we're, we're in our sweet spot. You know, it's the same for you. Like your your pure gift mm -hmm. is this ability to understand these challenges from a psychotherapy mm -hmm. perspective and create the kind of <laughs> catalytic <laughs> mindset shifts in the way that you did for me for more people, so that they can in turn carry along these journeys. Mm -hmm. um, so I think for yeah, it's, it's basically realizing that there are any number of ways to show up and. Mm -hmm. The flip side of how royally we've screwed the planet is how many number of ways there are to help it. You know, whether you're passionate about fashion, how do we change the fact that a third of the world's microplastics come from the textile industry? Absolutely. Or yeah. if you're motivated by your gut, how do we change that over 40% of food is wasted in America? Like, it never even makes it to the plate. So mm -hmm. there are so many problems and with them so, so many solutions. Um, but we have to do so in a very holistic, integrated, systemic way. How do you take people with you on this? Mm. Because you've mentioned it before, you're speaking from a position of privilege. Yeah. You've had masses of support to Absolutely. get you to this position, which is yeah. fantastic. I'm really glad you have. But lots of young people don't get that sort of support. They yes. don't get that positive yeah. mirror or reflection yeah. or encouragement. Yeah. In fact, they're struggling with you know adversity, with racism, with poverty. Exactly. So what, what would you suggest there? What do we do to make this whole movement inclusive mm. and actually take you know support others to get yeah. their voices heard well for one thing i think 
you know, climate justice is not separate from social justice. Mm -hmm. They are one and the same. Mm. And in fact, the people who are contributing the least to these problems mm. by way of environmental footprint are the ones who are now experiencing the problems most extremely. Sure. Um, and so it's in everyone's best interest to make this more inclusive, to invite more people in. And it's also about how we communicate about these problems, right? Mm. It's, it's in the same way that we often talk about feminism in the West. It's mm. about singularly about, you know, gender pay gap. And it's like, okay, but what about <laughs> the hundreds of millions of women out there who simply don't have access to an education mm. because of period poverty mm. or mm. can't reach school because of discrimination in that context. So it's, it's opening out these conversations. Um, I had this kind of aha wake-up call um, when I was working in a school not too long ago and I was talking about the climate crisis and I there was one particular group of girls who clearly were just, you know, chatting, having a good time but not engaging in the conversation and so I went over to them and I was like, you know, how's this landing for you guys? Is it triggering something? And they're like... And they were super forward with me in the <laughs> in the way that, you know, young British girls tend to be. And they said... <laughs> How do you expect us to care about climate change yeah. when every day we experience discrimination because of our religion, yeah. because of our color, mm. because of our gender? Mm. Mm. And that brought into perspective mm. just how far I was coming from <laughs> my little bubble of privilege mm. and the siloing of my efforts. and. The way that we navigated that together was by talking about the complexity of something like climate crisis. Mm. And I talked to them about the fact that, you know, we often fixate on solar panels and renewable energies, but actually the single best solution that we have for solving climate change is educating women and girls and providing them reproductive rights. Mm. And that was a big wake-up call for them as well. And so realizing that something that they experienced on a day-to-day -day basis, which they had personally been affected by, was also a tool and a lever for change in an international context, was so exciting for them that two of them both said, I want to go back to my hometown in Nairobi and I want to start an education initiative to make sure girls over there get, over there get the same education and access to opportunity that I do at the school in Bristol. So. It's all about that. It's all about opening up the dialogue, exploring it from lots of different perspectives. So you're, you're arguing mm. that the single most effective way mm. of dealing with climate change is yeah. educating women and girls. Yeah, and providing reproductive rights. And providing reproductive rights. Yeah, it is. It's according to Project Drawdown. Yeah. Uh, so Drawdown is the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. A powerful. Yeah. <laughs> It really is, Which yeah. I can see that it's that people would then be able to relate to that. Yeah. Because I really like what those girls said to you. I was yeah. glad they challenged you in that way. Oh, absolutely. Because, yeah. it, you know, it was it was a really important wake-up call. And I think it's how we need to see the entire conversation mm -hmm. shift and how we need to see the funding of ideas shifted as well. You know, we have so many... So much money being fueled into techno utopian ideas right, exactly. uh, in Silicon Valley that are glamorous and cool and funky and remind us of flying cars and the futures that our parents envisioned, right? Yeah, but right. actually, if we truly want to solve these problems, mm. the solutions are in reach, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the simplest barriers are. Tell us what they are. Come on. Well, 
you know, they're, save us. They're, yeah. I mean, there are girls in parts of India who can't afford school uniforms right. because the government stops paying for them when they're 12 and 13 years old. Mm. These school uniforms are the difference between them getting an education mm. and all of the positive consequences of that, mm. you know? having fewer children for one but mm. also being able to pursue careers having autonomy over their bodies having autonomy over their education you know mm. or if at the age of 12 they can't afford a school uniform which costs ten dollars ten right. us dollars they often end up in sex slavery child marriage mm. having lots of children who are then in the same poverty cycle right mm. so simply by providing access to education in that context we can educate masses of girls and create an all-round better, brighter society for everyone, right? Because this is the thing, it's, you know, we may not be experiencing the extremes of this problem as viscerally right now in the West. No. We obviously aren't. No, yeah. But it's only a matter of time, mm. right? Manhattan is projected to have nine feet of water. What are they going to do? Build a seawall, okay? <laughs> it's not realistic. Against nine, nine feet <laughs> Against of water. Nine feet of water. No, that's the current. Work. That's the current plan, you know, in a city that has the most progressive like climate policy in the world. So, you know, we're we're just deluding ourselves, and mm. suddenly this freight train is hurtling toward us, mm. and we realize that it's not slowing down. In fact, it's speeding up exponentially mm. most of the climate projections that we have received have actually been uh well underestimated the impact's been underestimated by scientists by the nature of how they project their findings you know scientists typically aren't communicators they're not gonna you know catastrophize mm. but we're seeing that things are happening much faster um and so it's we're just lying to ourselves you know mm. and so we need to break out of that story and we need to realize that this isn't about me over here in London and a child in Bangladesh who has already lost their home. Mm. This is about humanity. This is about our collective society and it's about lifting everyone up. Only by lifting everyone up do any of us have any hope of a future. Do you think as part of that some people need to be encouraged downwards? <laughs> I think I would our collective perception of power needs to change. Right. Power is talked about something held by a small elite mm. that comes from the top down. Mm -hmm. There is power, immense, unimaginably immense power within every single one of us. Yeah. And we each need to realize that, you know? Mm. You are one in 7.6 billion people and that is your power, mm. you know? So is the president of the United States. He is one in 7.6 billion people. It's all about how you wield that internal power. Yes, but I'm back to how do you do that when you <laughs> are feeling personally, uh, and I'm not expecting you to answer this, mm. right? But, you know, what I, I love what you're saying. And then I come back to yes, but how does the individual do that when they're feeling exhausted and oppressed and yeah. misunderstood and disallowed and their voice has been not heard for yeah. a very long time and then they try to be heard and yeah. then they get marginalised mm. again or patronised. I'm thinking about some of the language that's been used about the young climate strikers, particularly mm. the young women like Greta Thunberg. Yeah. You know, the misogyny, the racism, mm. the oppression has been phenomenal that's been thrown at them. Yeah. So how do you keep going, Clover? How do you find a way through that as a young woman 
arguing this yeah. very strong case. What do you do? Um, they're all just projecting. Right. They're fearful, they're anxious, yeah. and I feel empathetic toward them. Do you? Yeah. Well I, done. I do. I'm <laughs> impressed. Um, because they're just experiencing the breakdown of the systems okay. of which they have benefited right. their entire lives. Yeah. When the old calcified white dude looks at Greta Thunberg and says that she's a shrieking child and that she should go back to school. Yeah. Why is why is that old man really threatened by a sixteen year old? What what what's the reasoning behind that? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I I think it's just fear and anxiety and projection or else they wouldn't care. But do know? you think they're aware that it's fear and anxiety or do you think they're completely unaware? I'm gonna ask you that, Caroline. <laughs> I knew I knew that would happen. <laughs> I'm flipping it back on you. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, well, I, I'm not sure if there's a single answer. I think it's fascinating. As you know, I'm mm. kind of really fascinated by this at the moment. But I think it's a mixture of things. I think there is some um, degree of awareness yeah. that this is a way to silence, because this is misogyny. This is the way that women's voices have been silenced for decades. Yeah. Well, longer than decades, uh, for centuries. Um, and that systemic silencing of women's voices has worked. Yeah. Shaming women. Uh, the attempts to shame Greta Thunberg in particular um, have taken on a feel of emotional abuse to me. This is the language that's being used against her that we would not allow if they were doing it in the same room as her, but mm. they're doing it through newspapers and things like that. So I've, you know, I find that quite shocking and I find the sort of lack of reaction to that quite mm. shocking. The fact that broader society can somehow seem to allow some of that attack by grown men on children mm. fundamentally yeah um so you know i think they're voicing some of that for large numbers mm. um i think people are very afraid i think you're right i don't think people are aware of how afraid they are yeah collectively i was telling you earlier about this talk i gave yesterday and you know at the start of the talk that only a small percentage were aware of their anxiety mm. um and then sort of halfway through half the room was and then by the end the rest were um and I don't think I was making them scared. What I was doing was making them aware mm. of the reality mm. of things to be scared about. So I was waking them up. Um, I think that's broadly the problem out there. But I think some people are so, so defended or perhaps genuinely have lost sight of what's important that they absolutely don't care. Mm. So I do think there are some people that we perhaps will never reach. Mm. And then I think we will reach... A larger percentage. My fear, I guess, though, is that people will react mm. and start to turn on each other. You know, there was the, uh, you know, the fight on the underground with Extinction yeah. Rebellion this week. Now, I know that's different. I know that was because, you know, people felt delayed about going to work um, and they took it out on, you know, some individuals that were doing something that, you know, was on the one hand inadvisable but on the other hand was a sign of desperation mm. my fear I think is that level of social collapse yeah. that we won't get the opportunity to support people to make the transition that you're talking about because the social collapse will happen because of the speed of the change I might be depressing us <laughs> What would well, you say to well, that? So, I, I mean, my, what would be your I would, response I would, to that? I would throw back in the caterpillar analogy. Okay, go on. And this idea that the caterpillar must dissolve to turn into the butterfly. Right. There are going to be 
winners and losers right. in whichever yeah. outcome. So are you pointing out that I'm coming up against my struggle to dissolve in that moment? Because <laughs> I think I might be. I think, I think you might, you know... The, 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 the way if I fixate on social collapse or get mm. anxious about that, yeah. am I just kind of, you know, going a bit sort of stiff and rigid and scared mm. around that? Mm. And I've got to sort of find another level at which I can kind of allow that and give permission to those deeper feelings. Yeah. What do you think? I absolutely think that you need to be able to sit with all of those feelings mm. but not be crippled under the weight of them. Mm, mm because that is the nature of anyone who cares really deeply and so it's, a, it's because of empathy again do you mm, think absolutely yeah. absolutely because in in that particular scenario the tube situation you know you're you're already empathizing with the people who are acting out of desperation you're yeah. also empathizing with the people who can't get to work and could very possibly lose their jobs as a consequence yeah yeah you know yeah. and so uh, i think it, we're also we're also thinking through the context and the framing of breakdown as we traditionally know it. Yeah. There is obviously going to be a struggle that could very well be a war. You could argue that we're currently in a war and yeah. we're seeing this breakdown, but mm. it I don't think that necessarily needs to mean the complete collapse of society. I choose to believe that we're capable of more mm -hmm. and that belief in that we as a collective are capable of more and mm -hmm. that we as individuals are capable of tapping into that empathy mm -hmm. and collective consciousness and belonging, that is what serves me to think that we can navigate through this mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. all turning against one another. Sure. Yeah. And I don't yeah. know if that's naive, I don't know if it's realistic, but that is what I choose to believe because if we tip too deeply into the world of a uh, sort of nihilism, I think it can lead to apathy. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, that's I say nihilism is more of my natural state as a, <laughs> as sort of as a sort of skeptic and by nature of my upbringing, lots of different things. But yeah, I choose to sit in the seat of the optimist for most of my day yeah. because that is what helps me and that's when I feel most in my flow mm. but I can't singularly exist in that space mm. I need to create the space for the nihilist I need to create the space for the person who doesn't want to get out of bed in the mornings and can give Caroline a call and say this is what I'm feeling and you give mm. me license and permission to feel all of those feelings yeah yeah. yeah, and this is where we we were talking earlier. I think about this tension between despair yeah. and, and, and optimism, and and finding a way to form some sort of relationship. Exactly, that honors both. Exactly, because I think we perhaps have an idea that you know if we begin to feel the depression, the fear, whatever, it will be mm. a a black hole into which we will never again emerge, right? Mm -hmm. And if we securely sit in the role of the optimist, then we're just lying to ourselves, right? So I'm really curious to kind of pin that question back to you about how to just become more flexible in terms of moving in between those two spaces mm. and how to hold that tension between mm. both of them. It's, yeah, I think... I don't think this is a, a, a quick and easy answer, but certainly what comes immediately to mind 
is this idea that actually we've got to look at the relationship between them and not see them as two separate things, actually. And I think if we see them as two separate things, then we would see ourselves moving between mm -hmm. them. But actually, maybe it's about looking at the kind of the optimism that is contained within the despair, mm -hmm. right? And then the despair within the optimism. Because I noticed myself talking with you, you know, that you've taken me emotionally on a journey within this conversation of optimism, but also despair, and allowing both to be present mm. in this conversation. Yeah. And why would we need to remove one? Why would we judge one right. as somehow superior? Because yeah. isn't that part of the reason we're in this mess in the first place? Yeah. That we've judged these heroic, developmental, progressive, <laughs> you know, growth yeah. as, as superior. Yes. And the reflective inner lunar is inferior, mm. right? And we are, we're human, we can fall into that. So maybe it's about sort of, you know, really valuing, turning on its head the value of that despair mm -hmm. and finding the, the, the jewel, the bit of gold, the, yes. you know, digging right in, not just to the bottom of the lake and into the mud, but into the bottom of the mud <laughs> and finding, you know, yeah. how we can transform that. So it's stretching us, isn't it? It's stretching Absolutely. us to understand this. But you seem to be saying something about, you know, human nature can transform through this collectively, mm. which is fascinating and fits with the kind of deep adaptation. Yeah. And it fits with mm. the kind of climate psychology alliance. And it fits with all of the work you're doing. I really love hearing that sort of idea about it being very much focused on, you know, climate justice and social justice and particularly around women and girls mm. globally. I think that's really powerful. So just finally, you know, all of this came from you choosing at the age of 11. Yeah. Did you choose to watch The Cove? Yes. You chose yeah. at 11. So you chose to wake yourself up to something at the age of 11, right? Yeah. Um, it just, I just think it's really interesting because loads of people are kind of worrying about us scaring children about mm. the climate crisis. But you chose an 11 year old to go and watch that and use and presumably that scared you yeah. and horrified you. Yeah. Do you, do you think we should be telling children the truth about what we're facing in a, you know, in a sensible way and in a thoughtful way, not telling them horror stories. We don't want traumatized children screaming every night, but it sounds to me like that was actually really important to you that you woke up at 11 and took action. That was the most important catalyst in my life mm. I would not be standing where I am today if it were not for that moment in time yeah. that documentary and I don't think we give young people enough credit yeah young people have a depth of awareness and emotion that we need to acknowledge yeah. and only by not lying to them yeah. can we ever hope to, for them to be able to navigate through this. Right. If they turn around and realize, as older generations are now doing, that they have been lied to mm -hmm. for much of their lives, that is going to create irreparable damage. Mm. Now, the young people who I speak to as early as 10 or 11 years old are talking about a dystopian future. Mm. They aren't describing the future my parents did of flying cars and disease being eradicated, but mm. they're talking of a future where streets will be plagued by famine, mm. cities underwater, mm. 
and um, where they will not have the privilege of having their own children. Mm. These are children saying they will not be able to bring children into this world, right? Yeah. Now, that despair, I do not believe that it comes directly from the state of the problems. Mm. I do not believe that the eco-anxiety comes from the problems, but the lack of agency mm. from people in perceived positions of power mm. and lack of urgency in response to these problems. Yeah. Because young people cut through the BS. Mm -hmm. When we talk about Starbucks, they say, yeah, it's absolute bollocks mm. that they're not changing their supply chains and <laughs> they're you know, focusing the attention on plastic straws instead of the fact that you know, they're using child labor to grow their coffee right right so they see through it right that's where the angst and frustration comes from yeah, because they mm. see things in very simple relatively black and white terms that is what we find confronting about Greta Thunberg because mm. she connects to a moral absolutism mm. that many of us choose to plaster over and not acknowledge within ourselves mm. she says this is wrong and this is right mm. and I'm gonna do what I believe is right and we all need to do that. We all need to tap into that inner compass, that North Star, and we need to take influence from young people in how we hold and respond to these problems, and we need to give them more credit. Flavor, that is perfect place to stop. <laughs> Seriously, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Caroline. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Clover Hogan talking to psychotherapist Caroline Hickman. Do look up Clover's website. You can read more about her organisation there, Force of Nature. The address for that is cloverhogan.com. And please do share this podcast because I think there are so many nuggets of wisdom in there, so much to think about and act on. And also because um, this whole topic of eco-anxiety uh, is really snowballing at the moment. Climate Crisis Conversations, Catastrophe or Transformation is a podcast produced by the Climate Psychology Alliance in association with Parity Audio. See you soon.